0: You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 507, The Raven.
1: Once upon a podcast dreary, while we ponder weak and weary, over many a Star Trek episode and forgotten lore, while we watched, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as if some board gently rapping, rapping at the alcove door. For the rare and radiant maiden whom the collective names Seven, will she live as human, nevermore.
2: Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I am clearly not Edgar Allan Poe, I'm John Champion,
1: and in our goal to discuss every single episode of Star Trek ever made, examining it for morals, meanings, and messages, we have arrived at the sixth episode of
2: Voyager's fourth season. This week, the Raven, the one where Voyager welcomes the most irritating guests aboard, and Seven answers a call from the Borg, only to discover that she can't go home again. I'll be right back with trivia after a few words on how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at missionlogatroddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now... With just a little bit less rhyming, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. I was going to say that I have ever more trivia for The Raven. Oh, I love that
1: i will get right to it we have a story here by brian fuller and harry Clur, uh two familiar names for us if you don't remember harry pitched voyager with the story idea for real life in the third season and brian had already sold two scripts to ds9 that would be the darkness and the light and impact nor and as it is often the case that really doesn't tell you the whole story Harry's original pitch was something quite different. Uh, It was a story in which Seven of Nine's Borg technology reasserted itself and put the crew at risk, really taking a high-action approach to the story. Jerry Taylor bought it and then handed off the teleplay duties to Brian, who gave it more shape. But it was still relying on action, with aliens turning a re-Borgified Seven into a kind of Terminator. So enter Brannon Braga, who stepped in with some advice to help find the character, the heart to the story, by having Seven discover something about her own past. He was inspired by Citizen Kane, and the central mystery of that film, what is Rosebud, and in turn, who is Charles Foster Kane? Now, remember how we mentioned the last minute schedule change that would have had revulsion produced and aired after the Raven? Well, the 11th hour scripting was done by Brian cranking out this new draft in only six days, and that accounts for the Raven falling in here as the sixth episode of season four. It was directed by LeVar Burton, and we're still early in LeVar's eight-episode run directing Voyager. The last one that we talked about came in the middle of season two with the episode Dreadnought. After the Raven, he will be back for five more and then move on to Enterprise. Now, a couple of words about the special effects in this episode. It is cool to see an actual Raven used in the footage in the Borg flashbacks. That was a real trained bird brought on set. There are other complicated effects as well that we get toward the end, a blend of 2D matte and 3D CG when the ship, the Raven, falls off of its cliffside perch. And this is an episode where it is well worth a little exploration of the title. Yes, the Raven is the name of the ship and of the bird that haunts Seven of Nine, but it is also the name of Edgar Allan Poe's famous 1845 poem. The character, the narrator in that poem, is visited by a talking raven that symbolizes his lost love, and the theme is about the conflict between loss and remembrance. Some analysts even describe it as a story about PTSD long before that phrase was created— and knowing that, it's easy to see why it is an apt title for the story that we have today. Let's meet our guest stars. We get a longer glimpse of Annika Hansen's father and mother here, played respectively by David Anthony Marshall and Nikki Tyler. Both are veteran TV actors, and we saw them in these same roles in Scorpion Part Two. But don't get used to them. These are the final appearances of those actors in these particular roles. And when we explore Seven's past again, we will meet some new performers. Voyager encounters two representatives from the Bomar people— There's Duma, played by Mickey Cottrell, and you have to go way back to catch Mickey's first and only other Star Trek appearance. That was on TNG in the episode The Perfect Mate, where he played Chancellor Ulrich rather early in his on-screen career. His acting credits stretch pretty far over a couple of decades— but it is as a publicist where Mickey has a huge career, stretching back to 1977 and working on more than 100 features. Finally, the Bomar Chancellor Gauman is played by Richard J. Zobel Jr. This is his only Trek credit, but Richard appears in a number of other high-profile projects in his career, He started out on daytime TV with a recurring role on The Edge of Night, and he appears in everything from Hill Street Blues to China Beach and ER, and a small role in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. His final acting credit is an episode of The X-Files, and we lost Richard in 2005.
0: Every time a serious Edgar Allan Poe fan reveals themselves, you learn the old saying is true. Poe folks have Poe ways.
1: Prologue. Captain Janeway has invited Seven of Nine to the holodeck simulation of Leonardo da Vinci's workshop to help exercise her creative impulses. It's a tough sell for the former Borg, as a creation of art seems to serve no functional purpose. But a glance at Leonardo's prototype flying machine awakens something disturbing in Seven's mind. A hallucination of Borg drones dragging her to be assimilated, while a raven flies toward her. Act 1. The Doctor doesn't have a good reason for Seven's hallucinations, but he and Janeway are concerned about why it's happening. There's one more order for Seven, time to eat real food, just like humans, because her human physiology needs it, so it's off to the mess hall she goes. Meanwhile, Captain Janeway and her senior staff greet some guests, representatives of the Bomar, in whose space Voyager has requested passage. Absolutely no problem, report the Bomar, just one thing. Well, a few things. Voyager will have to power down all weapons and most scanners, stop for 17 inspections, travel no faster than warp 3, and take a wildly circuitous route that will add weeks to their trip. Janeway asks if they can negotiate for something a little more direct. Catching up with Seven in the mess hall, Neelix prepares something, and in the process he tries to impart some ideas about enjoyment, which go right over Seven's head— What doesn't go over her head is the recognition of Talaxians as a species assimilated by the Borg. That makes for some uncomfortable dinnertime conversation, but Neelix congenially recovers, and he guides Seven in her first bites of solid food in nearly 20 years. She's perplexed, but maybe kind of likes it? We won't know because before she can express herself, Seven is taken over by another hallucination about the Borg, and a new implant pops out from under her skin and attaches itself to her wrist. She gets up from the table, knocks Neelix to the floor, and tells him he will be assimilated. Act 2. Janeway's negotiation with the Bomar, not going well anyway, takes a turn for the worse when she gets word that Seven attacked Neelix and is now wandering Voyager's corridors. Seven isn't responding to communications, and a security team is dispatched to find her. The Bomar are upset at the very idea of a Borg wandering the ship, but Janeway can't be bothered with their protest. Seven easily makes her way past security guards as her Borg shields reactivate. She even crosses easily through force fields and is able to arm herself with a phaser rifle, all the while hearing the voice of the Borg in her head. Next stop, the shuttle bay. No security measures are having an effect, and Seven easily beams herself aboard a shuttle, then blasts her way through the launch doors. Seven is gone at warp speed and heading directly into Bomar space. Act 3. So yeah, the Bomar are not taking this well. Not only do they refuse to help find Seven, but they warn Janeway to stay out of their space. Any move toward them will be seen as an act of aggression. Meanwhile, they track everything that comes into their space with a sensor grid. They'll deal with Seven. Janeway doesn't like the sound of any of that and has Chakotay escort them back to the transporter room. To uncover some clues about Seven's behavior, several of the crew look around her alcove in the cargo bay. Bolana finds a Borg data node, something that Harry figures has been used as a personal log, so he'll get on translating that. As the Bomar step up their security, Janeway's motivation to find Seven takes on more urgency when the doctor informs her and Chakotay that her Borg nanoprobes, mostly lying dormant, have begun to reassert themselves. Fully 13% of the tech he removed from her has come back, and it will keep growing unless they can stop it. He does have a medical solution, a hypospray with a genetic resequencer, but someone needs to get close enough to administer it. And there is a possibility to do exactly that. Tuvok and Tom have been working on a way to hide a shuttle to pass through the Bomar perimeter. They can get through, but then it's a matter of finding Seven and staying radio silent so they don't tip off the Bomar. If they fail, Janeway gives the authorization to stop Seven with whatever force is necessary. And how is Seven doing? She's in her shuttle still experiencing the images and the voices of the Borg coming for her. In this hallucination, though, she is cowering in fear under a console, as the Borg drones call her over the screech of a raven. Act 4. The Bomar are in hot pursuit of Seven, but that's of little consequence when Seven starts using her superior tech and firepower against them. Also in pursuit are Tom and Tuvok in their own shuttle. Once they're close enough, Tuvok beams over and his plan fails from the get-go. Seven is waiting right behind him and knocks the hypospray out of his hand, then renders him unconscious. When he comes to, and safely behind a force field, he questions Seven about her motives. She says she's been receiving a Borg signal and intends to rejoin the Collective. But that can't be right, because Tuvok points out Voyager hasn't detected any Borg vessels, and normally those signals don't result in hallucinations. The challenge gives Seven some pause, but she insists on her mission, and she catches herself deciding not to assimilate Tuvok, but rather send him back to Voyager with thanks to Janeway for her kindness. That sounds pretty human to Tuvok, but Seven is still determined to rejoin the Collective. Harry Kim has a bit of a breakthrough with Seven's personal log. In it, he finds descriptions of her interactions with the crew, routines, nothing remarkable, and nothing that indicates that she had a desire to return to the Borg. But it does offer another insight about the hallucinations, like the appearance of a big black bird. Janeway puts it together. The bird is a raven, and that gives the captain an inspiration to scan for Federation signatures and head right for Bomar space. Act 5. The shuttle with Tuvok and Seven has arrived at an M-class moon where the Borg signal originated. Tuvok isn't convinced that there actually is a Borg collective waiting, but sensing Seven's fear, he volunteers to beam down with her to satisfy both of their curiosities. Tom is close by in his shuttle, and Voyager has reestablished contact with him. They'll all set a course to rendezvous at the stolen shuttle, but of course, Bomar ships are on their way too. Tuvok and Seven beam down to the surface to find something very strange. It's a derelict Federation ship, partially assimilated with Borg technology, and sitting precariously on a cliff for nearly 20 years. They enter and Seven remarks that it is familiar. It's the Raven, the vessel that a six-year-old Annika Hansen was aboard when she and her family were assimilated by the Borg. She turns off the abandoned Borg signal, and the memories come back. Her birthday, her parents telling her to run, the relentless attack of the Borg drones. There's a new attack coming, though. The Bomar have arrived and opened fire on the moon's surface. Inside the Raven, Tuvok and Seven hurriedly search for an exit as the ship will surely fall off the cliff if the attack continues. Voyager has arrived too, and while it fends off the attacking Bomar, Tom gets into position to get a transporter lock on Seven and Tuvok. Those two escape the quickly collapsing Raven by forcing their way through debris to an open hatch. As they watch the remains of the Raven fall off the cliff, Tom beams them to safety on his shuttle. And as soon as they're back aboard Voyager, it's time to get out of there at warp eight to avoid the incoming, very furious fleet of 68 Bomar ships. Sometime later, Janeway finds Seven on the holodeck in Leonardo's workshop. Seven is contemplative, specifically around the what-if, had she been raised by her parents, how they would have influenced her, and she them. Janeway offers up the Federation database files on the Hansons. They had unconventional scientific minds, and perhaps reading about them will encourage Seven's imagination further.
2: The end. As much as I loved your recap, John, I was hoping for a little bit more, I don't know, ever more pipe rhyming <laughs> man, because your like, opening it, was so strong in, in the opening of this episode.
1: That's the thing. Like, we dedicate the time to write the whole thing in verse mimicking Poe that, Oh man. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, have to get paid a lot more. <laughs> take a lot of time, <laughs> uh, but thank you though. Thank you. Sometimes it has got to cut to the chase as we will do now. Something that I'm glad to see more of and therefore something I'm glad to see less of. Glad to see more of Leonardo's workshop set because it's very cool and way more interesting than that weird 19th century manor house.
2: I was wondering, there's so much flotsam and jetsam of Leonardo da Vinci's recreation of a Mm -hmm. studio. How much of that is fed into the the, the program to be accurate? Or is it this is as good as we can program the holodeck so it's accurate that's a, you know that's a good question because I, it, there has to be some
1: i know that there is a da vinci museum or a leonardo museum that has recreated artifacts but if you fed every bit of information in the world about leonardo da vinci into a computer how accurate could it be to create his workspace like you can recreate the art you can do a really good facsimile of the mona lisa and we see it there mm-hmm. and in this museum they have recreated things like his flying machine prototype and all that. so those things are pretty accurate you can imagine but to do the room itself that uh, the holodeck might have to be filling in a lot of a lot of unknowns there
2: it's kind yeah. of an ai situation it right? is
1: yeah absolutely yeah. Absolutely. Good lesson here from Captain Janeway about taking a break
2: from work. And I imagine that'll Mm -hmm. be a theme that comes back that we'll get into later. I love Jerry and Seven. I could reference both of them almost as in the same person because I could see the nuances of, you know, Seven just looking at how futile sculpting (laughs) is. Right, right. Right. Just what is this? What am I supposed to do with this little ball of clay? It does nothing. It goes back. It goes forth. It doesn't you know, it doesn't provide me any pleasure or inspiration. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. That was good. Just it, absolutely it was hilarious. Yeah. Really well done.
1: I also, by the time we get her into sickbay, I really like her assertion that she was raised by Borg and has no reason to fear them. Because I like how that puts everybody else's experience into perspective and why it's different that she should have the gut reaction of fear really nicely
2: done. Right. I think we've brought this up before. You can only understand the Borg from your perspective. If if you are raised by a certain tribe, you do not fear the tribe. Yeah. If the tribe, yeah. however, is the Hun, you yeah. would fear the Hun and yeah. Attila at their, at their leadership. Right. So yeah, sure. It's a matter of perspective. Seven's uniform is... Remarkably different than the seven uniform of like the last few episodes. It's not metallic, it's more earth tone ish. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if this was a decision behind the scenes from one direction or another, uh, either from like a Brian Fuller or someone in, you know, production or from the network. I can tell you exactly whose uh, reaction it was based on, and that
1: was Jerry Ryan's because that first costume was so restrictive she actually passed out they knew they needed to change the fabric they knew they needed to change the cut they knew they needed to get rid of that high collar because Mm -hmm. it was just cutting off her ability to work she had passed out during uh, one of the early episodes with it and then it was such a an ordeal to get changed and they needed to come up with a better solution. I think this was shot before any of season four had actually premiered or maybe just right on the heels of a premiering. So mm-hmm. um, that, that was absolutely an actor and wardrobe decision that they had to make together. Bob Blackman, I think, was still the wardrobe director at the time. So,
2: But I like very, the opportunity that they mm-hmm. took to make her new uniform look more borg in tone because mm-hmm. there are more kind of like modeled grays and and browns, mm-hmm. you know, in this new uniform wear when she's put next to a borg, it yeah. looks more similar than her highly metallic silver suit.
1: Yeah. Right. Speaking of wardrobe, speaking of how some of our characters look. All right, the Bomar. It's <laughs> it's just kind of silly. I mean, come on, the the face cages and the patches on the costumes and I guess they were really trying to spend their budget elsewhere because there's a lot of effects in this episode, but it just felt like it felt like low budget '70s sci-fi. Like when there was a a huge rush of low budget '70s sci-fi after Star Wars was a hit, and everybody felt like, oh, we got to rush the thing into production. I don't care what the aliens look like. Uh, put a put a cage on their face. Uh, that'll be fine. Kids will love it. <laughs>
2: You know? Although, uh, I, I will give them credit for um, coordinating the, almost kind of like the the colored window, tinted windows, uh, the face plates with yes. the color squares on the uniform. Yes. So yes, They were trying something. It wasn't just so haphazard that it looked like that. It really did look like someone just said, hey, you know what, uh, Chad GPT, what would a, <laughs> a a football helmet look like in the Bomar
1: yeah. <laughs> um space uh,
2: yeah oh, uh, that's what we get, okay yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, all right I, and I'm really I'm entertained by the list that the doctor creates for Seven's nutritional needs, and mm. honestly, by the time she gets to the mess hall, I think that is one of the best scenes in this episode or in the last few episodes of Voyager because so much gets expressed. In such mm-hmm. little time, there are a multitude of layers there, and the actors are playing them all. It is wonderfully done.
2: When Neelix says a good meal involves much more than simply providing the proper nutrients, I feel John Champion energy here. That's me. Uh, That's with Neelix. Brian Fuller wrote that for me. He did not know me, <laughs> but he wrote that for me. <laughs> and, okay, so I'm glad you brought up not just the nutrition part, Mm-hmm. But you know, let's talk about like seven and her her entrance into actual physical solid food and eating yeah. solid food. Yeah. Because when certain muscles atrophy, you need to actually exercise them in a proper way in order for them to work properly. The esophagus is one of the largest muscle systems like in the human body. Yeah. Right. So when you chew, there are I don't know how many, there are so many different muscles that maneuver food from your the top of your throat to your stomach. Mm-hmm. If those things aren't conditioned properly, they don't work properly. Yeah. There's a very like there was a very possible reaction that she could have had to essentially choking. Yeah. to this. Yeah. So I know it's supposed to play on humor. But at the same time, though, this is Star Trek. They mm-hmm. do scientific stuff. Yeah. This could have been a little bit more scientifically approached.
1: Uh, a very close friend of mine, he and his wife had a baby a couple of years ago that child had a lot of medical issues and had to be fed through a tube for the majority of his now two-year-old life and because of that those muscles to swallow didn't get developed the same rate that they would for another child of the same age and it became this really interesting thing where he has to be taught to swallow and i i thought about him in watching the scene because it's a Mm -hmm. very real thing Um, I Look, I do have to question since we are talking about food. Neelix says, oh, I'm going to give you this food steamed. Why does he throw it in a wok? The the man <laughs> needs to read know. a cookbook. He needs a cookbook. There should be plenty to replicate on board
2: or just bring it up in the Federation database. Come on. You know how many products out there are that, that are just either like a protein bar or a shake or something that's just essentially a block of nutritional supplements? Like Soylent? You so you don't... Something like, like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. aside from the people part. Yeah, but no, you're right. You're right. So I'm right. yeah. So I was wondering, like, why not? Why not just replicate that for seven? Yeah. So that you actually have literally like the proper fuel for your Borg body to ingest and then learn how to associate these nutrients into your physiology over yeah. the correct course of time. It's like I've never eaten anything before. And you're like, what do you have? Well, I have I have a deep dish pizza. With double pepperoni, double cheese. How about that? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> I know. You know, because I don't know. I don't, that wouldn't have any adverse reaction to my body ever. Yeah, right, right. right. Uh, when he finally does serve her, you think it was potatoes
1: on that dinner plate? Kind of looked like that. Kind of yellowish it, looking and, you know.
2: It, it could have been potatoes. It could have been sweet potatoes. Oh, could have been. Could have been. No.
1: Nice bit of CG work with that new Borg implant. I thought that was Yeah, cool. I thought that was very impressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, very nice. And a very cool sequence to Seven wandering the ship and arming herself, because it, it really had some menace to it. And, of course, Tuvok's
2: security team,
1: still not great at
2: security. Yeah.
1: I mean, so yeah.
2: Seven still possesses the Borg shield technology. Yeah. Does anyone else think that this is an issue? <laughs> yeah. And I, I know this is every—it seems to me that every series— has their character that can take over the ship or get past the ship's defenses. We saw that with Spock, you know, in the Menagerie. We saw that with Data in I don't know how many episodes that you can count on one hand. And I think in Deep Space 9 even Odo was able to like lock out like security on the station for like an episode. Right. And then you have Seven. So it's just one of those really are you going to have a character on your ship this powerful and you're going to just let them wander your hallways with impunity?
1: I mean, I know. remember Tuvok is the guy who created a whole Holodeck program about Seska and the Maquis taking over Voyager. <laughs>
2: and I have, yeah, I have more to say about the way that Tuvok's security system, uh, team okay. Like they they approach <laughs> they approach 7 and the elevator with rifles. Yeah. Rifles are long range weapons. Yeah. You literally approached her at hand weapon range. Yeah. And she has a rifle, too. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or you could maybe, I don't know, hide down the hallway and turn the corner That's, and use
1: that for cover? See, I was thinking that, too. That, that was a weird bit of blocking in that scene. Yeah. Like, we'll take position here. Well, here is literally right in front of that door. <laughs> it's going to open in, like, two
2: seconds. Yeah. Lieutenant Commander Tuvok. Right. Right. Right.
1: I think Janeway says it's been two months since Seven took up residence in the Carco Bay, but that doesn't sound right because the doctor says something about taking out her Borg tech like three weeks ago. So uh, a little Mm. bit of a discrepancy there, but
2: whatever. I love the start of Act 3 because the Beaumont chancellor basically says, so, and he rattles off this line of dialogue, which is essentially Acts 1 and 2 to catch you up (laughs) to this point, right? It's like— oh my gosh, I my dinner was late and I didn't turn Voyager on in time and my VHS isn't working. Uh, What's going on? Oh, thank you, Chancellor. Yeah. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah. And yes, you had a little bit more close up on the uniforms of the Bomar. Still doesn't excuse them, but no. I thought that they had a little bit more intent rather than <laughs> just being a weird hallucination by the costume designer yeah it was still a weird hallucination okay.
1: and oh my god all right here we go again making the you got balana and harry in cargo bay two examining uh seven of nines stuff all of her tech right and here we go yeah. again making this joke at harry's expense about what is a just a bad, uncomfortable situation to begin with. Can we please just be done with
2: this and give our characters their dignity back? That is all I ask. Right, right. No, I I get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, they should have just let that sit in the last episode. Let me get this right. So Janeway's trying to make a relationship with the Bomar, and they obviously have their laundry list of, of requirements before they can sign that treaty. So instead of trying to work with them there, they're going to trick their allies, enter the sovereign territory, Hide any trace of it so that he can pursue Seven. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's what I gather that's from the plan. plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Speaking of pursuing Seven, one of the things that really kind of struck me funny, and this is something that I just have a, a huge pet peeve with, so Tom and Tuva get into the shuttle and they're supposed to be like racing towards Seven, trying to intercept her before she does any harm in Bill More space, mm-hmm. but the stars outside of Tom's window are stock still. that's true right so they're not it's it really does feel like we're in the shuttle set Uh, yeah yeah yeah. exactly (laughs) because none of the stars are moving you know you get that kind of impulse slash warp star trail that sometimes you see outside of the window
1: look sometimes you got to pick and choose where that budget's gonna go that's (laughs) that that, that was that was a scene that got lost uh, interesting bit when Tuvok beams over to Seven Shuttle and she's waiting there behind him, disarms him. Well, gets the uh, the hypo spray out of his hand. Where do you think
2: she learned to do a Vulcan nerve pinch? Have I have a theory? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I have a theory. Okay. So this has been talked about ad nauseum in like the Star Trek communities, and I'm oh. sure that I'm going to get this completely wrong. But this is my theory. <laughs> this is my theory. So. Vulcan and non-Vulcan characters have tried to attempt the Vulcan nerve pinch with varying degrees of success. But it's always been my understanding that it is an execution of nerve manipulation and precision of a specific nerve cluster based on the species that you need to incapacitate. So if you have the strength and you understand the application of the anatomy on the anatomy, then you should be able to execute this properly. But you need the strength portion of it. Vulcans have the strength. Uh Seven would have the strength. Data would have the strength. Obviously, Vulcans would have the strength. So that's where I see that being successful. When I don't see it successful is when a human does it and successful.
1: Right, right. Right. So
2: So, that's my theory.
1: Does Seven have that knowledge because the Borg assimilated Vulcans who had that knowledge?
2: That's what I understood when she okay. kept saying, like, species. I can't remember what she said yeah. Tuvok species was, but she yeah. did know that this Vulcan species does exist. Therefore, she probably knew that somewhere along the line she assimilated some, or the Borg assimilated some, yeah. and their techniques, All which right. obviously would get into the Borg cloud, and everyone would learn that. Fair enough, right? fair
1: enough. I, I have to say that every one of these moments where uh, after Tuvok wakes up, These moments where Seven catches herself and the the human emotions start coming out. Just wonderful stuff. Mm -hmm. So, so good. And interesting choice when we come back to Voyager and we see Janeway standing in the Borg alcove. I mean, best case scenario as a human that it really doesn't do anything for her. Worst case, it tries to assimilate her. I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would trust <laughs> it. Like, what do you learn from being there? Except uh, please don't assimilate me. And then uh, when Harry comes up with his translation of her log, apparently she finds my behavior easy to predict. And the captain saying coming wow. from seven, that's probably a compliment. That was right. a funny line. And, and see, I like that as a precursor to the awful, awkward interaction that she and <laughs> Harry already had, <laughs> you
2: know? Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's another, it's kind of similar scene you know, between Tom and Tuvok, when Tuvok's about to beam over to Seven's stolen shuttlecraft, and Tom's like, you think this is a good idea? And Tuvok says, I have the element of surprise on uh, my side. Seven has literally anticipated every single defensive maneuver to take over the shuttlecraft, to escape the ship, and then obviously to be able to incapacitate Tuvok. So being the master of logic that he is... yeah. Why would he basically embrace? I got luck on my side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We've made fun of this before, John. About certain force field levels. Yeah, Seven says that you know, be careful. There's a level five containment force field. I don't yeah. want you to harm yourself. Why not just go to level ten? Why not go to eleven? Yeah, right. If this one goes to eleven, just just make
1: you know, or just make ten the higher make 10 the highest one that you can go and then
2: just use that. Exactly. That That's what I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nicely done. Uh, but that's the whole point. Like what would force field level one do? Like just go to force field level top number.
1: Yeah, you know, exactly. Exactly. Now uh, the team up of Tuvok and seven in the shuttle and taking this mission together when he goes with her, I think it's just great because I, I love this pairing that he is the most likely one, from Voyager that she would trust and his analytical ability is really needed uh, in the situation and by her. And I really hope that we get to see more of them together since he, Mm. by being teamed up for her, he actually reveals this kind of compassionate side and she feels comfortable enough to be vulnerable with them. I think it's such a good character pairing. I want more. And uh, by the way, big, big mystery here. How did this Federation shuttle get this Far Federation ship, rather, the Raven, get this far into the Delta Quadrant in fewer than 20 years. And I guess we'll have to wait and find out. Hopefully that will be
2: addressed. <laughs> I really like the way that they handled the graphics and the design for the Raven. I thought that was really well done. Yeah. I liked that there was like this shorthand like visual key of one of the larger warp nacelles like in the foreground where it had yeah. like, a large red bizarre collector like right. the Enterprise D because that just says, "Hey, look, Federation technology." Yeah. So I'm like, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to google this because I I wanted to engage our audience with if there was any significance to the Raven's registration number mm. NAR325450 that's 32450 yeah. so Please let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great shot of Voyager
1: arriving on top of those Bomar ships. I uh, got to wonder if this will be another in the long list of Delta Quadrant stories about how awful Voyager is. <laughs> 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 Lord knows we've heard that. And I kept asking myself, how big can Bomar space possibly be? Space is three dimensional, y'all. You can just hopefully just go around. I hope, you know, (laughs) and uh, at the end, Janeway says to Seven, hey, the doctor can turn off that homing signal receptor that you have. It's like, he hasn't done that yet. (laughs) What are we waiting for? (laughs) Do it now. Do it yesterday.
0: If you're having nightmares about the collective sending drones after you, are they boogeymen or are they borgiemen?
1: Well, I mentioned it in the last segment, uh, but I want to come back to this idea of really appreciating these little life lessons that we get here about the human experience and that human experience, the breadth of experience being more than what is simply functional or necessary so i love how janeway tries to engage seven with art and neelix tries to engage her with food and there's something really cool about seeing them do that in this open-minded way even though she's going to be resistant no matter what we know that because you can't just undo 20 years of bored programming that quickly but she is i guess appropriately resistant and then it's nice to see somebody like janeway just say well but it depends on how you look at it i I look at it this way i look at it as a thing that i need to relax my mind because running voyager is already (laughs) complex and i need that break I, i just i thought those scenes were so nice
2: how about you are you saying resistance is not futile (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, in this case, I, I'm saying I'm saying resistance is expected and it'll be interesting to see seven's resistance get turned down mm-hmm. over time because I, I feel like that's what seems like this will
2: foreshadow as her character grows in the future. I'm of two opinions when it comes to Janeway's uh, uh, with her relationship with seven as much as I do mm-hmm. appreciate the energy and like the, the spiritual energy of the original series that I see with Janeway and with seven, I see a lot of Kirk and bones in Janeway and a lot of obviously Spock in mm. seven, where you have these yeah. teaching moments where Kirk and McCoy, even though they probably at um, much to Spock's dismay, you know, and, Well, a little bit of the humor they have at his expense. They do have these human moments where Spock's like, I've learned something from this. And Kirk, you know, he kind of looks and has a little like wry smile and Bones has a little bit Mm -hmm. of a jab. But there is a little bit of this kind of like a caring nature that that Janeway has with Seven for her to grow. But at the same time, though, and I want (laughs) to I want to phrase this properly. Yeah, there still seems to be. And maybe this is a stylistic thing with Kate and with Jerry as of their acting relationship right now, where I feel Mm -hmm. that Janeway is just a little too heavy handed with the reason why you should do this, because I think it's the right thing to do. Well,
1: you're calling out a specific bit of dialogue that I even wrote down here. Mm -hmm. It's this interaction with uh, Chakotay and Janeway when Seven has already left Voyager. Mm -hmm and they've conferred with the doctor i'm sorry they're about to confer with the doctor and chicote says we can remove implant after implant but maybe at her core she's still part of the collective and janeway says no i won't accept that and we're we're back to this like very specific interest in saving 7 of 9 and i i think this interesting contrast to chicote's questioning if they ever truly can i think what chicote poses here is a legitimate idea to consider here. Mm -hmm. And maybe Janeway's insistence on turning her back into a human. Why? Because it's more comfortable for her just because she feels like, well, uh, you know, I'm morally obligated to make her human. The majority of her life, she has not been human. She has been Borg. Her identity, and again, we brought this up early in discussions the Seven of Nine, her identity is that she sees herself as Borg. But we have this very specific circumstance mm-hmm. where she had to be severed from the collective. She had to stay on Voyager. And yes, that, that human nature part of her will reassert itself. But what is the compassionate and right thing to do? Is it to tamp that down or to keep tamping down
2: the, the part of her that is Borg that will reassert itself? And I, I made a note of that exact same moment between Jacote and Janeway. Mm. I want to go back before I address that, I want to go back very quickly to to Janeway's style. I think that it complements what you're saying about Janeway's reaction to Chakotay. So I know that I've been or have expressed a more unpopular opinion about Janeway's approach <laughs> to Seven. Because I know that there are a lot of Janeway fans. Uh-huh. And it's not that I'm not a fan of Janeway. I love Captain Janeway. She's one of my favorite characters mm-hmm. in Star Trek. I'm just not right now on the same page of how she's... Progressing with Seven because I don't see Janeway's approach as being educational rather than being manipulative. And I don't mm. think that Janeway sees it that way, but it comes across for me that way just because you don't see so many other options for Seven to learn other ways of how people approach life, how people approach humanity. You just see Janeway's examples of. You should do it this way because it reflects me. You should do it this way because I found success in it because of my experiences Mm -hmm. with it. Now, I understand that we'll probably get to that. It's just as of right now, everything that Seven's really learned about shedding her Borg preexistence to understanding humanity has been at Janeway's tutelage. Yeah. But I'm wondering what Janeway's actual motive is for that. Because I think in some ways she's using Seven as a way to legitimize I can save Voyager if I save this one being that was taken from the Borg. If I can do that, I can do anything. Right? Yeah yeah no I, I
1: get it because there is something
2: in that opening
1: scene look as great as that opening scene is because it truly is and it says a lot mm-hmm. but there is something that you can look at it as being a bit of uh, maybe not manipulation but it is a bit of Janeway's self interest in that and it, it, as you just described like I can get seven to experience things like I can well what if that isn't exactly what she needs and maybe isn't exactly what she needs now mm-hmm. i'm curious what 7 of 9 expresses she wants or needs a little bit different situation with the nutrition mm-hmm. because the doctor is saying like you need to eat you actually need solid food now the regeneration chamber won't work as well because we have removed so much of the borg technology That makes sense. Totally get that. But I'm curious if left to her own devices, if Seven just going through the Federation database, would that be enough for her to then inquire? Like, I want to understand art. I want to understand relaxation. I want to understand how humans experience this thing or another. Because it it does sometimes feel like Janeway. It's like it's her project. Right, right. You know, instead of really considering... What is best for Seven? Now, a few weeks ago, if you had asked Seven, what is best for you? The answer would be to return me to the collective. Mm -hmm. And we know that that can't happen. Right. But given that that's the reality of the situation,
2: what is the next best thing for her? I think that there was a really interesting opportunity that could have been explored here in the same way when the ILEA unit, was brought back on board Enterprise after being absorbed by V'ger. There were so many examples of how that Ilea unit was observing and understanding and digesting the information of who was Ilea and what is humanity based on Ilea's experiences with the crew. I love the scene where Nurse Chapel puts Ilea's favorite headdress on her in her dressing room, and I yes. said, "This was yes. Ilya's. It was one of her favorites." And the way that Persis Kambata portrayed the nuances of trying to understand what that meant, why this particular, you know, unfunctional like device would bring about and, and uh, emulate such emotional response from a from you yeah. know from a living being. It's like, "This is just, you know, this is just a device of some kind. This is just, yeah. you know, this is." Well, to, to Vijra, it's just, you know, um, functionless. Yeah. You know, because the simple right. act of understanding a human emotion and response is beyond Vijra's comprehension. So I think that that would have been interesting to have seen with Seven, where she's approaching food more from a curiosity, you know, and understanding yeah. that once she tastes, because food. Or you know music or anything that you know uh, elicits some type of emotional response could unlock something incredibly powerful in her yeah. when she least expected it. But I think that but that is what is
1: maybe intentionally because we're you know, look we're we're being critical because. It's our job to be critical, (laughs) you know. But uh, there might be something here that is intentional in the contrast of what Seven learns from the hallucination and learns from the experience of memory versus what is being handed to her by Janeway and by Neelix, Mm -hmm. because you just said it, you know, the, the birthday cake. Okay, well. The, the idea, the memory of something like there was a cake. Okay, go further. What did it look like? Well, it had seven candles. Okay, now what did it taste like? And if she's back on Voyager and Neelix can, well, hopefully replicate because his cake would be terrible, but hopefully replicate a birthday cake, that's the kind of thing then that connects that memory to the person that she is now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I hope, look, we're so early in Seven of Nine's story here. But over the next three seasons, I I hope that what we get, well, really three and a half seasons, more than that, I hope what we get is that journey of self-discovery. Because maybe part of the the idea here is that, yeah, look, she's going to be resistant. She's not going to understand why these things have value and meaning to other human beings. But having this point of connection, even though it was fearful, even though it was traumatic th- remembering the trauma not remembering the experience of the borg and just being her caretakers for 20 years but remembering the trauma of what it felt like as a 6 year old to get taken away by them that's actually the the more important more important point of connection and that leads her then to all these other things like the love of her parents the the care they had for her the protection they gave her the moment of having that
2: cake all these other things get to resurface for her i wanted to go all the way back though to answer your question about you know this this dynamic between chakotay and janeway in Mm -hmm. that scene even though it was a very brief scene it still feels like the unresolved tension or distrust between them has been resolved since scorpion chakotay is still of one mind janeway is still of one mind and she's very you know dogmatic about it and so is he and i think in a way that a first officer needs to be But it doesn't seem like they're on the same page in terms of Seven's best interests. I think Chakotay, rightfully so as first officer, is, I need to know what we need to do in order to best protect the ship in our mission to get home. And Janeway is like, no, I need to make sure that you know Seven is following kind of like my prescription to understand her humanity because I don't believe that she is reverting back to her Borg state. And Chicota's is like, I can't take that chance. There yeah. are too many times. Yeah. And because of what was happening to her, because the attack on Neelix, because of the implants, because of what the doctors said, Chicota's is like, I have all of the evidence on my side, right? Yeah. I don't know what the outcome is yeah. going to be when we find her. But right now, everything that I've said about the situation based on the experiences and the information that has been given I think that I have the leg up in our conversation, and I'm surprised that Janeway is just so snapped to, no, I don't believe that. Like, she's a scientist. She knows what evidence looks like. She knows what facts presented look like. So why doesn't she even come to some sort of a, a reconciliation with Chakotay's instincts here?
1: Yeah. And just to say, like, OK, we need to step back and consider that possibility. Right. <laughs> you know, we really do. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned there's the attack on Neelix. Uh, there's the attack on Tuvok in this episode. There is uh, previously, you know, we mentioned the attack on Harry Kim. And here uh, she has stolen a shuttle. She's broken, caused some real property damage mm-hmm. on uh, Voyager by breaking through those doors. You mentioned the security protocols that are clearly not in place by Tuvok. Do they do more after this point? Because I mean, think about when Data took over. You mentioned this when Data took over the Enterprise uh, because he got the you know the homing signal turned on from Doctor Sone. They just say like, oh well, well that was Data, and yeah, he's stronger and smarter and more powerful than all of us, but. Eh, that That was just that one time that he wasn't in his right mind. Right. He'll be fine mm-hmm. all the other times <laughs> like do they do they have that same
2: conversation about seven? I have to wonder well, I mean you, you gotta think that okay, if she can do this then she can do mm-hmm. this unless we put protocols in place. And it's just, it's, it's the, you know, break glass in case of nanoprobe override to seven, yeah. right? <laughs> She's literally got an alcove. She can make more Borg parts if she wanted to, right. you know? I mean, if, if any of those, if she really wanted to do any of and, well, hold on a second. That brings up a very good point. If she really wanted to do any of the crew serious harm, she would have. But there was something that prevented yeah. her from actually executing anyone who stood in her way. When the first two security officers fired on her, and then you know she was hit the first time, and she obviously was annoyed, and then the second time, you know her shields went up. She could have easily killed those two crew members, but she let them go. She is like, you know what? Yeah. Maybe there's something that she has learned. Like, you know what? They're not a threat. I have an agenda. I'm not going to let you get in my way, but I'm also not going to end you either. Yeah. You know. Well, and,
1: and that that really plays out when she's in that scene with Tuvok in the shuttle. Right. That that is just some marvelous dialogue about her describing him as a species that was assimilated. But then saying, I'm not going to assimilate you. That, that
2: change in her face is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I've said this before, but I, I can't really help but remark again on how good Jerry Ryan is as an actor. The nuances she brings yeah. to this character are really incredible. But I am a little concerned that she is another one of those outsider characters looking in that we have grown accustomed to a la one per series. Spock. Data, Mm -hmm. Odo, Mm -hmm. and the Doctor, right? Yeah. And now you're going to have two very talented and, you know, very capable characters written in this similar fashion. Do you think that they're going to either complement each other or detract from each other's overall story Mm. arcs?
1: Oh, you know, that's a really good question. From the audience's standpoint,
2: because you can either focus on one or the other. The Kes, being one of the outsider characters, always complemented the Doctor's growth and journey because she was the proponent for his rights. So what is Seven going to bring to this relationship, if any? Or is she going to be the predominant character of the the fish-out-of-water scenario? Right. I
1: mean, I think what's good about Star Trek is that you could look at any series and any of the characters and you will find either the one that you identify with or you will find aspects and many that you identify with or inspiring to you or, or what have you, whatever that relationship is that you have with that character. The question that you pose is very interesting here. Is Star Trek and specifically Star Trek Voyager big enough to have two of these who are really front and center because we made a lot of progress with the doctor. Does he then take a little bit of a
2: back seat? Mm-hmm. How much more do we get out of him the further we go along? I mean, to make a you know to extend that point, Robert Picardo, in my opinion, I think is is my favorite actor, talent wise, of this cast, yeah. and he has brought so Agreed. much you know to just the overall development and story arc and, and character. Uh, study of of the Doctor and how we relate to him, and it's been kind of tapering off over time ever since he's gotten his hollow emitter because he's a little bit more prominent just yeah. overall in the in the dynamic between the cast members. But now you have this character, and it's she's fresh and she's new and she's mm-hmm. almost kind of like a Tabula Rasa esque you know element you know to everyone. So what will that bring out of the Doctor, or will we as the audience focus more? on that development than, say, the overall development of the rest of the crew. I will say, well,
1: the rest of the crew, some of them might be a lost cause. But uh, but I will say that the thing that Seven of Nine has going for her as a character that the EMH does not have or at least had but we didn't thoroughly explore is this tragic background, this really traumatic invasion of who she was, That turned her into something that she is now that maybe she will not be by the time we're done with the run of that character and the doctor we did introduce that element of tragedy which I think we had a pretty good discussion about that in uh, in real life and uh, why that was probably a missed opportunity um, and why it probably didn't necessarily count uh, for him being the hologram that he is but now we get to explore these things in a I think a more visceral and more emotional way than we were able to with the image.
0: Hanging around in a doomed ship until just seconds before it falls off of a cliff, that's so Raven.
2: We have come to the end of the episode. We are wrap wrap wrapping at the final act. <laughs> I can't, I'm not a poet and it obviously shows, uh, but I needed to try and attempt some kind of humor here to bring us into our final comments. Uh, and what we do here on mission log traditionally, as we talk about, does the episode hold up? Does it stand the test of time? And then eventually conclude with, did we find any morals, meanings or messages from the majority the bulk of our discussion and the analysis that we've had prior to this point? Uh, It was a fascinating episode, and I I would love to hear you, John Champion, and your thoughts about The Raven. Did this episode hold up for you, and were you able to mine any morals, meanings, or messages from it?
1: Well, uh, look, I I can't say that we will never more discuss The Raven Mm -hmm. because I think The Raven is a seminal episode that will come up over and over again through our journey with Voyager and through our exploration of a character like Seven of Nine. It is a big change from last week's episode in both of them trying to do a similar thing, which is to figure out more of who Seven is and what we do with her as part of the crew. But I think this one is more successful Mm -hmm. in its attempt. And I think it is also a testament to Something that I've said before on the show, that there is no right or wrong way to develop a story to determine if it will be good or not. This script had a very difficult birth. And essentially what made it to screen was a second draft. And it works brilliantly. If I had one nit to pick, it's that the B-plot with the Bomar is really just there to add an external threat Mm -hmm. and some additional spaceships and shooting. You really don't need them to get across what's important in this episode. But but the episode might have felt thin if it was only Seven's journey back to the Raven. So consider that. In the end, I'm just amazed at the careful and deft hand in dealing with Seven. Again, just night and day from what was happening in Revulsion. And again, Jerry Ryan absolutely is the MVP here. She plays this combination of danger and vulnerability in a really profound way. I I feel like this is one of those must-watch episodes because even if it's not the strongest on its own, and even if the B plot is totally forgettable, The way that the Raven fills in the story about Seven is so utterly important to understanding her that it can't help but hold up. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, What about you, Norman? Well, I'm I'm very much on the same page. And, you know, I think that. It's not the strongest episode in, in terms of its narrative. It's not the most original, and it's, it's very formulaic. I mean, you know that there's a mystery to be solved, and you're, you're watching Seven go from point A to point B in order to solve this mystery, you know, with certain plot points that, again, are, are, are very formulaic. But what elevates the episode from it's okay to this is a must watch and definitely holds up is Jerry Ryan, Jerry Ryan right now. And I don't know how many times we're going to say this throughout the course of (laughs) the rest of our tenure here on Voyager, but she really does elevate the material in such a way where you, you can't help, but want to watch every single moment where, you know, she's involved with interacting with other characters or finding the nuances of seven, et cetera, et cetera. What I think is really interesting about her is, I think that she makes very smart acting choices based on her character or scene partner, because you can see her energy with Kate, which is very different than her energy with Ethan or Johnny, you know, Neelix. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing mm-hmm. a little bit more comedy in that performance, where you're seeing a little bit more drama in uh, her reactions with Jane Janeway. So I, I find that really interesting. I mean, it's rare, at least for my taste, when a character can rise to such agency and prominence so far in an already established series. I mean, you can, you can clearly feel that, at least from this episode, that Seven is no mere additional character, like additional in terms of the reason why she's there, the obviousness yeah. of choice, why Jerry Ryan is... As Seven of Nine was chosen as this actor, as the, uh, as the character, there was this an entire askewed marketing campaign about her introduction to Voyager. I think that's all been very clearly defined and clearly talked about ad nauseum since Voyager came out or when she came out on Voyager. Mm-hmm. But the craft and the care of the writing seen through the performance or her performance in this episode proves to me that she's more than just the obvious choice, more than just the sex appeal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There is a line of dialogue that it it just blew me away, not just from the the performance of it, but the care that the writers took to give this line to her to illustrate her character. It it worked on so many levels and when I watched it I was just in awe of, like, okay, yeah. they're taking this character to a completely different um, context here. Seven said to Tuvok in The Raven, talking about her birthday cake. Yeah. My cake had six more candles on it and one more to grow on. Okay. Seven candles. Yeah. She was seven. Yeah. She was seven when she was human, when yeah. Annika was human. And even yeah. before she could understand what that meant, she was taken and turned into seven of nine of the Borg. Yeah. I mean, think about that. I mean, it's like, sure, if you're watching it with half an ear to the TV, that might be lost on you. But if you're really watching this character grow, that in and of itself was just phenomenal. Like, the, just the layering of that. Unfortunately, you're right, the Bomar story didn't really do anything to help make this episode or elevate this episode to something better but and it could have been like alien of the week it really didn't matter what you named them what you costumed them in they were just part of the framework to to facilitate the episode but aside from that though i think this is definitely definitely an episode to watch again
1: that's the thing i mean it's one of those episodes where somebody says the raven to you and five years from now you're gonna go oh that's the one where seven goes back to the raven you're not going to remember the bomar You're not going to remember any of that. (laughs) This is going to be, yeah, what's important here is learning her backstory. Mm. What also is important here, maybe the morals, meanings, messages, if we uh, picked one out. And look, this isn't one of those bonk, bonk on the head or you see Timmy stories. But that's okay because there is so much other stuff that the episode does well. Seven's journey. Front and center, no question about it. And she experiences the benefits and the difficulties of exploring her own imagination and her memories. She is who she is because of the experiences that she had. And it's not to her benefit to try to suppress those memories of her human family. The Borg are the antithesis of this, where the past is irrelevant, sentiment and compassion are irrelevant. What matters is function for immediate gain. But Seven now knows that her life is incomplete if she tries to adhere to that philosophy. And I kind of teased it in the opening, the, the idea that you can't go home again. But Seven is trapped between three homes. The Borg Collective that she has known for the majority of her life, the new opportunity of living on Voyager and forming bonds with the crew here, and the memory of the family that she had when she was six years old. And maybe part of the journey to accept the found family that she has now is to go home to the memories and possibilities afforded to her in that childhood that was cut short. So maybe going home in that respect is how she can make a future for herself. It's also, in this episode, I think it does something that Voyager can be really good at, which is treating the crew like family. And you don't always see that on Starship crews with them you know, banding together with a fellow crew member's mental health is their concern. But look at what we have here. Janeway takes Seven's creative growth seriously, then the doctor takes Seven's hallucinations and mental state seriously. Neelix does his part to bring some levity and enjoyment into Seven's life to broaden her range of experience. And then Tuvok, God, I love Tuvok in this episode. He really steps up as a friend and confidant and partner to face down the unknown together because he is protective and he knows that getting answers will be to her benefit. That Kind of working together, and that that ensemble as a family is
2: Voyager at its best. At first, I wanted to I wanted to focus on Seven's post traumatic stress disorder,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: but I felt that the more I looked into it, the more I tried to research it and find if it was a proper moral meaning or message. I didn't feel qualified to talk about it, mm. so I pivoted to a different topic. I just I had a page of it, and I just like you know. I, I just don't feel comfortable with talking about it, but I, but I do uh, feel comfortable talking about is when, when Janeway said that uh, you know when she was talking to Seven about imagination, and I landed with we are more bored than we might think, and Janeway is mm-hmm. right. Imagination frees the mind, and I want to um, I want to quote this specific scene where. Janeway talks about imagination and creativity and fantasy, and Seven responds, I am uncertain why those things are necessary. Janeway says they aren't necessary, Seven, but they're an important part of one's life because imagination frees the mind. It inspires ideas and solutions. It can provide a great deal of pleasure. Human progress, the human mind itself, couldn't exist without them. This reminded me of a scene that I watch over and over and over again. You know, when I... It just... It's an inspiring scene to me. And it's a scene from a movie Up in the Air Hmm. between George Clooney's corporate axe man, Ryan, and J.K. Simmons' Bob, a man who has been assimilated by the system. Hmm. Ryan says, "'Your resume says you minored in French culinary arts. Most students work a fryer at KFC. You bust tables at Il Picatore to support yourself.' Then you got out of college and started working here. How much did they pay you to give up on your dreams? And then Bob replies, 27,000 a year. And then Ryan continues. At what point were you going to stop and go back to what made you happy? And then Bob responded. That's a good question. Hmm. So when I rewatched this scene, as I do on occasion, Something just kind of fit into place. I realized that I figured out something about the Borg I've never really considered. The Borg, at least in this analysis, represents societal conformity and the death of individuality and the death of imagination. Everything that Seven reacts to in this episode is because her humanity is reconnecting to the childhood that was stolen from her and that there's no more fertile time for imagination and creativity than childhood. Now, I'm not so. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a licensed therapist, you know, of any kind. But from my experience, if you ever think it's too late to be inspired, you know, to embrace imagination, to be creative, you know, to free yourself from the monotony of the mundane that has made us more Borg than human, then I think it isn't time to embrace that. It isn't time to free yourself. With imagination. Whatever it is, if your passion's cooking or painting or singing or acting or dancing or hiking or playing sports or being creative, whatever inspires you, whatever lifts you up that gives you that true purpose, that fulfills you in ways that no amount of money ever could, certainly not $27,000, <laughs> right? That is what keeps us connected to our humanity. And I think that Seven, in this case, is such an important character at this stage of Star Trek's narrative because she represents that awakening, that struggle to reconnect what is truly important in all of us. Mission Log is produced by
1: Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit
2: trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log scientific method.
0: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Schaubel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. Remember to stop by Bomer Outfitters for a buy-one-get-one-free special on color-coordinated face cages, this weekend only. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.